You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. All right, everybody. Um, if you, uh, well, first of all, just welcome to Mill Sunday School. Everybody say hi, Joe. Everybody say hi to the bagel people back there. There's like a hey, bagel people. Uh, if you're if you're newish around here, uh, we have a card that looks like this. We would love it if you filled out and gave us your email list. We could put you on our email list and information. If you gave it to the give it to the nice people at the end of Sunday school, uh, to the tables back there, we'll give you a CD just for saying thanks for coming. It's it's one of our CDs of the Mill on Friday nights, which um, I hope hopefully you all have been to the Mill on Friday night. It's our bigger meeting. This is the Mill Sunday School, though, and all this month. Uh, we're learning about missions, missions. And so uh, we have Pastor Evan Martin, our mission pastor for New Life uh, in that department. He is going to be teaching us about missions today. So let's, let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. God, we, we love you. We, we worship you with our hearts and our minds, Father. Would you open us up and, and allow us to receive from you a message today about, about your world, about your truth God, speak through Evan Martin today, and, and God, we want to glorify you with what, we, with what we do, with what we learn about, and God, we, we are just honored to be in here, honored to be learning about you. So God, we love you, and we praise you, and all Sunday School screamed, Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Sunday School. Uh, like I said, my name is Evan Martin. You guys, if you guys have been here the past two weeks, uh, I've had an opportunity to share and uh, speak about missions. Um, I'll, I kind of want to review uh, where we went the first week and then last week. Uh, but before we do that, I just um, I kind of want to just go someplace that has nothing to do with missions, nothing to do with necessarily what I was preparing for. Um, but I, th- I think this is for somebody in here. It's this sentence. We are defined by what we ask. We are defined by what we ask, and uh, I guess I guess this past this past week this really hit me um, a couple of times, and I felt like I just needed to say that to you guys, and and it goes it goes along the lines. I think we I think we can understand it in the physical realm. I think we can understand it in uh, the occupational realm. We're defined by what we ask. Some of you guys are going to graduate college. Some of you guys already have jobs. Um, some of you guys are going to have the opportunity to go in and, and ask for a promotion or uh, go, go out and a company's going to recruit you or something like that. And you're going to have an opportunity to sit down and they're going to say, they're going to say to you, okay, well, we really want you to be a part of the team. And that, that's your opportunity. I think we understand that in the occupational realm to say, well, this is what it's going to take for me to, to do this job for you. And then you ask for a certain amount so that you can be employed. Does that make sense? You guys following me? You're, we are defined by what we ask. Meaning, if you ask small, you will always be small. If you ask big, you have the potential to be big. Okay? But in, in the physical realm, I think we understand that at least to, to some degree. But it carries, over, it carries over in the spiritual realm. Meaning that we are defined by what we ask. And I think some of us ask of God and ask of ourselves very little. Because I think God is looking for a room full of young people right now that are going to ask for nations, that are going to ask for changed lives, that are going to ask for affected destinies. But I think, 
I think what was kind of stirring in my heart this week was that we're defined by what we ask. So if we just ask for the nominal Christian life, if we ask for the American dream of, of a house with a white picket fence and 2.5 kids and, and, and maybe even what, what the church capital C has been asking for lately, which is kind of just the blessing if we ask, we are, we are defined by what we ask. And I don't want the American church, I don't want myself, I don't want the church that I'm a part of to be defined by us just asking for a blessing. I want to ask for big things. I want to ask for things that, that, are bigger than, that are bigger than anything that I could reach on my own. Because I want to be, I want to be defined as somebody who asks for something that's out, that's out of reach so that when, when it actually comes into my possession, somebody has to say, that, that couldn't have been Evan, but it had to be some, something inside of Evan, something about Evan, something that he believes in that was bigger and better than, than he could possibly be. So we're defined by what we ask, and sometimes I think we just, we just ask for a free breakfast at Sunday school. Maybe we just ask to, to go to church, and if by going to church we, we ask, God, I'm, I'm, I'm serving you, I'm, I'm waking up early on a Sunday morning to come to church, and so I, I, I just ask that you protect me. I think sometimes we pray simple prayers and then those prayers compounded on themselves define our life. And, and we wake up and it'll be 20 years from now and we'll just ask, God bless me, give me a good night's sleep, or God bless me, give, uh, just be with me today, give me a good day, help me to get through my job, help me to get through these chores and these tasks that I have to do. And we wake up 20 years later and God's done exactly that. That he's blessed the desires of our heart, but the desires, the desires of our heart were never bigger than ourselves. And so I want to challenge you guys to think on that. And I don't know who that's for, and maybe, maybe somebody in here is, is actually facing a, a job transition or, or will be asked to, to switch jobs, and, and maybe it is just, just in the physical realm. Man, ask big. Ask big. Believe in yourself so much. Believe in yourself so much. Because the world will hold you back. Nobody else is going to think about yourself in this world. Nobody else falls asleep thinking about your welfare. So in the physical realm, I'm challenging you guys as young Christians that, that should be the best worker in your whole office area, in your, in your whole company, you should be the best one. And so, and so you should dare to ask big. So ask big in the physical realm. Don't be afraid to negotiate. But also... If you can do it in the physical realm, you can do it in the spiritual realm. So ask for nations. Ask for changed lives. Ask for your family, to, ask for your family history to be changed at you. That you break away from that and you get on a totally different vector. We are defined by what we ask. So stop asking for small things and start asking for big things. Join me. Encourage me. Champion, champion myself, champion your friends to say, man, what have you been asking for? What have you been asking for in your prayer life? What have you been asking for in, in that, those times when you're just driving and, and the music kind of fades to the back and you just start talking to God? What are you asking for at that point? If you're still asking for yourself, I, I think you're asking too small. So ask big. Ask for big things. Okay, that was free. Um, I want to... I want to review where, we, where we've been. Uh, the first week, 
uh, we went out looking for donkeys. Uh, we talked about how Saul was anointed king while he was out doing a mundane task. He was searching for donkeys that were lost, bumps into Samuel and gets anointed king. And then on his way back, uh, ends, up, ends up prophesying when a group of prophets come by. Um, and we talked, about, we talked about how sometimes you just feel like you're out looking for donkeys. Sometimes you feel like you're just doing a task that your parents told you to do or that your boss told you to do. But uh, never underestimate exactly where you are or what you're doing because God can reach down and anoint you in that task for a greater task. Uh, last week we talked about Calvinism versus Arminianism. Um, if, if, uh, the five points of Calvinism, you can remember them in the acronym TULIP. The first one is total depravity. Uh, Calvinists believe that, uh, that man is inherently evil, that he will, he will choose self over God. Uh, if left to his own means, you is unconditional election. That that is most known uh, as predestination, and uh, we we talked about we talked about that a little bit. Limited atonement, meaning that that the cheating way for an evangelical Arminianist to say this is that Christ didn't die for everybody. I know Calvinists would would uh, argue that, but meaning that Christ's blood only covered those who were predestined to choose him. Irresistible grace is it doesn't it is means that no matter how how we run, no matter um no matter what our feeling or our heart is towards God that his grace will overwhelm us and actually catch us. Kind of like a tidal wave is how I like to remember it. And then P is perseverance of the saints. That means once saved, always saved, and that's the calvinistic view. The arminianists uh, view is basically God's exhaustive foreknowledge doesn't doesn't require a doctrine of determinism. Uh, that's that's a it's a little bit hard to understand at at first, but it just means that just because God knows everything doesn't mean that He makes our choices for us. And so um, what we did last week we we kind of had a had a fun debate, and we had uh, this side I think was the Arminianist and this side was the Calvinist. And we gave uh, two of the guys a, an opportunity to uh, debate that fact. And um, the Calvinists lost because they were predestined to lose. Um, somebody, somebody asked me, well, what if, what if the Calvinists lost but they were predestined to win? Wouldn't that screw up their whole theology? And I said, maybe that's a better way to put it then. So, um, so and then we also discussed, you guys kind of discussed in your tables, um, our decisions on Calvinism versus Arminianism, why that fits into the month of missions is this, is because we have to understand what we believe first and what we believe helps us to choose how we're supposed to act and specifically in the realm of missions. So um, if we believe that um, basically that missions is unnecessary, that would be a hyper-Calvinist hyper view that Anybody who's going to be saved will be saved no matter what happens, and therefore I have no part in it. Uh, it doesn't matter what I do, what I say, or anything like that. Whoever's going to be saved is going to be saved. And so, so then we said, well, if you believe that, you believe that missions is unnecessary, that would be hyper-Calvinistic. Uh, and then if you believe that missions is our privilege, I would say that that would fall more under the modern Calvinists, meaning, meaning that... Anybody who's going to be saved will be saved, but it's our privilege to take part in somebody's choice to be saved, if that makes sense. And then I would land on uh, what we discussed in the closing minutes last week, is that uh, missions is our duty. Um, 
that, that I would say is an evangelical Arminianist mindset that it's our duty, meaning that there's something inside of me that, that, that believes that if I don't go out and do it, if I don't go out and, and tell somebody about Jesus Christ and what he's done in my heart and in my life, then they might not ever hear and therefore might not ever get a verbal chance to, to hear about the story of Jesus Christ and therefore choose heaven or hell in eternity. And so, and so the, hopefully you guys are following these weeks. The first week is you've got to get Jesus. The second week is you've got to understand why we go on missions. Are we going just because we go to a church that has missions trips? Uh, just because there's opportunity kind of in today's age where you can fly around the world and be back in a week or two weeks or a month or six weeks. Is that why we go on missions? Do we go just because there's flags hanging up and we're supposed to kind of think about missions? Or do we go because we believe theologically something about that, that it is in fact our duty to go on missions? So now what? Um, I think, I think it leads us to these three points. Now what? We need to understand our times, we need to understand our world, and we need to understand ourselves. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land most of today on understanding yourself because I think, I, I think, and I've been in discussions about this, that we send people too quickly. And in massive groups, it's easy to jump onto a team or jump into a system or a structure and then just go. And sometimes we go and we get over there and we realize wow, this person's on missions in another country where the point is to tell somebody about Jesus Christ, but they haven't fully understood the whole relational context of Jesus Christ. They've, they've accepted Jesus, and therefore they want to show people Jesus and what he's done inside of them. But there's still these issues that, that are kind of need to be hammered out, and that'll make sense in a little bit. Okay, understand the times. Uh, one of the great verses in the Bible is First Chronicles 12, 32. Uh, it might come up on screen. I'm not going to. I'm not going to uh, turn to it. It it basically says this: the men of Is- Issachar understood their times and knew what the nation of Israel should do. And so, this this is just one little verse in the list of. If you go to this and study this later, this is a list of all of the men and all of the people, all the warriors that came and rallied around David before David became king. So we talked, about, we talked about King Saul two weeks ago, and now we're kind of catching back on the tail end of that story. And that is King Saul has, has really fallen away from the Lord, um, and he's, he's banished David. He wants to kill David because now he knows that David has been anointed as king. Okay, so David's hiding out in the caves, and he's gaining momentum because... Uh, because people are realizing Saul's, Saul's not a good king. And so people start coming towards him. You guys can read that story. But this verse in 1 Chronicles twelve thirty two, it says, The men of Issachar joined David because they understood the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. And so there's a list of these warriors, these, these leaders of tribes and these commanders, basically generals. And they're, they're all coming to David. David's living in caves sometimes. Uh, sometimes he's living in, in uh, cities kind of on the outskirts. And all of a sudden people, people start to, to follow him. And so I think, I think we should be like the men of Issachar, that we should understand our times, meaning that we should know where our allegiance should be. And as it becomes tougher and tougher to be a Christian in today's world and in today's society, 
we should still hold fast to say we're not going to give allegiance to a system or a structure or a person who's falling away, who's taking us, who's taking us this way, meaning Saul. But we should find, we should find that person who's got the heart, who's got the heart to chase after God. And I'm going to go find him, even if he's in a cave. Does that make sense? That sounds weird. But if, if you need to find that and rally around that, that type of a person, that type of a system, even if, even if they're in a cave and they're following after God, you find that person and you say, my allegiance is first with God and then it's with you, but it's not with somebody who's going to take me further away from God. And then we should understand our world. Uh, turn with me, John 17. I'm going to read 14 through 19. This is Jesus as he prays over his disciples. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. By the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For I sent... For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And so Jesus right there reminds us, listen, we're not, we're not of this world. We're passing through. So you have to know, you have to be able to look at this world and you can't, you can't become part of the world. You can study, you can study the news reports. You can understand, you can understand what's going on in the world, but you have to have the perspective. When you look, when you look at the headlines, when, when you watch, when you watch the news shows, when you're in discussions, you have to look at the world and realize, listen, I'm just passing through. I'm a stranger in this land, but my home is in heaven. And if you, if you have that perspective, then it'll change, it'll change your outlook on the world. But you have to understand the world. We can't send, we can't send uneducated, uh, unstudied, maybe is a better word, better word. We can't send unstudied people into this world with, with the hope of changing it with the message of Jesus Christ. We have to have the message of Jesus Christ, but then we have to understand what is happening in this world in the context of, of that people group's culture. And then... Uh, understand yourself. First Timothy four sixteen. This is a great verse. This is a verse. This is a verse that could go on a sticky note, uh, paste it to your to your mirror in your bathroom or or on the dashboard of your car. First Timothy four sixteen. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay. What I want to do right now is I'm going to have you guys as an example of understand the world. Some of you guys have already done it, but, uh, on your table is, uh, a geography quiz. There should be, there should be one or two per table, but before you get started, this is what's going to happen. Uh, you guys, you guys are going to complete this as a table and then you're going to, then you're going to give it to a table next to you and they're going to grade it just like elementary school. So, um, so, there's 14, there's 14 countries. All, all we're looking for is the name of the country. There's some clues right there to help you out. So on your mark, get set, go. Okay, you guys ready? Okay. Okay, the way this works is just like, just like in high school. Um, if, they, if they spell it, if they spell it wrong, it's completely wrong. So, so spelling counts. Uh, 
There's 14 possible, uh, 14, 14 questions. Here we go. Okay, number one, shout it out if you know it. Not Miami. <laughs> what? A, I think I heard it. Number one. Number one is Honduras. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. All right. Number two. Shout it out. Number two. Peru. You guys' microphones aren't working. Um, number two is Peru. Number three. Everybody should have gotten that one. Okay, number four. Shout it! Shout it like you believe in yourself. Come on, the, the motherland, Germany. Germany is number four. Okay, number five. Anybody? Ukraine is correct. You need the spelling for Ukraine. U K R A I N E. Ukraine. Okay, number six. Nigeria. We're doing good over here. I don't know about the rest of you guys. Okay. Okay. Number six is Nigeria. Okay. How many, how many of you guys raise your hand? Your, the paper you're grading is six for six. Ooh. Ooh. And I'm running. All right. Okay. Number seven. Number seven. Shout it out. Uganda. Yes. Most, a lot of you guys have been there. Number eight. Num- number eight is not Djibouti. Say it again. Rwanda is correct. Rwanda is spelled R-W-A-N-D-A. It's not Rwanda. It's Rwanda. Number nine. Number nine. Anybody? Zimbabwe is correct. Z-I-M-B-A-B-W-E. Number ten. Number ten. You guys should all get this. Number ten. Number ten should not be missed. Afghanistan, thank you very much. A-F-G-H-A-N-I-S-T-A-N, number 11. Number 11, Nepal is correct. Number 12, if anybody gets this, they are fired. China. Okay, number 13, Thailand, correct. And number 14, the country with the most Muslims in the world, 177 million Indonesia. All right. Okay. Um, raise your hand if you got five correct. Raise your hand if that, if that. Okay. Pass it back. Pass it back. Pass it back. Okay. Pass the paper back. Okay. You should, you should have your own tables paper, paper right now. Okay. Raise your hand if you got five correct. Everybody at the table, raise your hand if you got five or more correct. Five or more correct. People, what happened over here? What happened over here in this corner? I'm going to buy you a globe. Um, All right. Six or more correct. Keep your hands raised. Seven or more. Eight or more. Nine or more correct. That was a falling off number. Ten or more correct. Raise your hand like you're proud of taking a geography quiz in Sunday school. Okay, 11 or more correct. Ooh, Kirkendall. Please. All right. You can't switch tables? <laughs> okay, 12 or more correct. 
13 or more correct? Okay, so two tables are left with 13 or more correct. 14 or more correct. Congratulations. <laughs> you, had, you had a spelling error. So you called Afghanistan Afghan. Okay, we'll give it to them. All right, everybody applaud that table. They win. All this, all this time I thought, I thought, well, Aaron's been to so many countries, he should know the answer to all this. But, okay, so uh, in the rule book, it says that you can't, you're, you're just expected to know the rules. It's like the speed limit. It's like the speed limit. It's 25 unless otherwise posted. So, so by, by using the iPhone, you're cheating. Therefore, Cliff Butler's table, congratulations. Okay, okay, you guys all get a free bagel at the end of Sunday school. Um, okay, so that, that kind of on the points of understanding the times, understanding your world, and understanding yourself, that was obviously understanding your world. It's funny how we can, we can process information to pass a test, but then we so quickly can forget about that information. All of us have been tested on geography uh, maps and globes uh, in, in the past, but we can forget about it. And so we always have to be mindful. Listen, Christians should understand the world better than any other people group, better than any other religion. Okay. We, we should understand our world. We should be, we should be up on the news, but not, but not, uh, engrossed with the news. We should know what's happening and we should be able to interpret that and have it make us, make us dive back into the scriptures because of it. So understand your world. But where I want to land and where I'm going to kind of run through uh, in, in the last few minutes that we have is, is really understanding yourself. There's, there's a lot of analogies for God in the Bible. John 15 is probably one of the most popular ones. You guys know that, uh, that it says, He is the vine, we are the branches. And it talks about how we're supposed to be grafted into Him and that, and that our fruitfulness is tied into us being in Him. And then uh, one, of my, one of my favorites is Hosea 14, 8, which, which basically God speaking in that says that I am, like, I am like the green pine tree and your fruitfulness comes through me. What I love about pine trees is they're never changing. Um, some of you guys who have been around here for the last couple of years know, know some of the torrents and some of the, some of the uh, things that we've been through as, as a family and as a church. But you know what I love? I love coming in here and looking at some of these pine trees and knowing that throughout all of it, these pine trees have only gotten bigger. And I think that sometimes we can go through things and we can think, man, the whole world is, is being shaken up. And, and some of the things that I used to think aren't, aren't true anymore. But then you look at God and it's like, it's like when Lucy looks at Aslan and I think it's Prince Caspian and she, and she says, Aslan, you've, you've gotten bigger. 
And he basically responds by saying, no, the more, the more you know me, the bigger I get. And these trees, these trees throughout everything have only gotten bigger. They've stayed green and only gotten bigger. And I think, I think that's a good picture and an image of God. In Psalms, you know that David, David refers to God as a rock. There's one story where, um, where David is actually running from Saul. And it says that he ran around this big rock and Saul was chasing him, but he was on the other side. And I like to think that out of that, out of that pursuit, when David's running for his life, that he wrote those Psalms that said, you're my rock. You're the one who stands in between me and my adversaries. You're so big that nothing can get to me. But today I want to refer um, to God as something that, something that I kind of just was thinking about this week, that I think God is like a blacksmith. When I was when I was little, I remember getting out of school. I was still in elementary school, and it was the first week of summer. And you think, man, I finally get to sleep in. I finally get to do uh, only the things that I want to do. But my mom had signed me up for this museum week long class. It was the Littleton Historical Museum. I was so upset, but um, man, I would I would send my kids to it as soon as they get old enough. I would send them in a heartbeat. Um, we wouldn't stay there, but we'd wake up every morning and, and drive with another, another family that was going to it. And we'd spend all day at this historical museum. It was like going back into colonial times. And you got to, each day was a different station and, and you would, you would get to see how people actually lived back, uh, in the colonial times in, in early America. And you'd, You'd go through, and one of the stations was the the little village printing press, and you got to actually make a newspaper uh, by taking the block letters and the ink and the the smell of a of a wood floor kind of small small room uh, cabin, and and then you'd you'd make lunch for everybody one day, and and uh, one of the days is you got to you got to be a blacksmith, you got to work with um, the blacksmith, and you didn't get to do anything that was. It was too extravagant. I was I was probably ten years old or something. So it's not like I'm playing with fire and hot metals. And, but the guy in front of me is, and so it's, it's such experiential learning. I think sometimes, sometimes in today's today's age, you go to school, you sit you sit in a in a lecture hall, and you and you try to gather information and it's processed just verbally. But when you learn ex- experientially, it sticks with you. And I still remember the smell and the grit and the and the blackness of that of that shop, and um, and so when I when I have when I have this this image of God, it 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 can take me back to this, and I'll I'll tell you how I came to this image. But I want to give you a few facts first. I'm just going to run through these. Um, there's one of those there's one of those type villages in Pennsylvania, and um, in in 1810. Pennsylvania reported that they had 2,562 blacksmith shops doing $1.5 million worth of work. And in 1850, the United States had approximately 100,000 blacksmiths. Well, think about this. That was 1850. By 1960, there were hardly any blacksmiths professionally. Some of its, some of its hobbies, some of its those historical sites. Um, but as demand for their products declined, blacksmiths augmented their incomes by shoeing horses. And sometimes we think that, that blacksmiths shoed horses, but really that was a totally separate job. But uh, as, as the demand for their product declined, a lot of them became 
uh, shoers of horses or what was called farriers. Uh, and then, this is interesting, with the introduction of automobiles, the number of blacksmiths continued to decrease, and many former blacksmiths uh, became the initial generation of the automobile mechanics. Isn't that interesting? So if you were, if you were shaping metal, it would just make sense that, that when the cars came along, there was more money in that, less demand for your product, and so you jumped onto an assembly line and became uh, somebody who put cars together. And like I said, in the 1960s, uh, they, they became almost extinct as a trade because there were few people, there were few people being trained and few people entering the trade. And, and it's one of those things, you can't just decide to become a blacksmith. It takes, it takes a lot to get going. If, all, if, if you decided to walk out here and say, you know what, I found my calling, I'm going to be a blacksmith, good luck because then you'd have, to get a, you'd have to get a shop, you'd have to get an anvil, you'd have to... You'd have to get, you, you can't just get started. I, I became an umpire. All you have to do is basically buy, an, buy a uniform. A lot of you guys, a lot of you guys, for your work, the way to get started, if you're waiting tables, you just got to get a uniform for that, for that restaurant. But as a blacksmith, there's, it's so, it's, it costs so much to get into it. So the term blacksmith was actually adopted by the farriers, and that's why we don't use the word farrier uh, when we refer to people who, who shoe horses. We just call them blacksmiths, but it just was because there was hardly any blacksmiths around. The way that you form metal um, is that you, you put metal into what's called a forge. A forge is, is basically, it's a fireplace. It's the hearth that you, that you put the metal into. Um, and, and you do that so that the metal can be changed into what's called a malleable state. A state at which the metal can be, can be formed, can be manipulated. The, the interesting thing about metal that's, that before it goes into the fire and before it gets forged, is what they say, is that it gets stronger. So actually by bending it and shaping it, the grain of the metal makes the metal stronger. There, there's two ways that you can forge metal. You can forge it hot, like I said, by putting it in the fire and then beating it over an anvil, or you can forge it cold. The problem with forging metal cold is sometimes it has a tendency to crack, has a tendency to break. Stay with me as I'm trying to get to a point here. When it's cold, it's extremely difficult to work with, as you would imagine, uh, just taking a piece of metal and trying to hammer it into a 90-degree turn or into a loop or something like that would be very hard. And then there's also press forging. And that's not, a, that's not a hammer on an anvil. That's a big machine press that you slide the metal into and then you just press it and it gets formed and, and fashioned into, into uh, the shape that, that the blacksmith desires it to be in. The anvil actually acts as a heat sink and it draws the heat out. So, so if, the, if the anvil itself, you guys know what an anvil looks like. If the anvil is cold, when you put that hot fire, hot metal onto it, right out of the fire, and then you start hammering it, the heat, the heat in that piece of metal will actually sink into the anvil. And so the metal cools. And you guys, can, you guys have that image in your mind of this glowing orange uh, metal that's being, that's being crafted into something like that. And so in the winter, it's actually harder to, to smith or to blacksmith because you have to, you have to work quickly because the, because the metal doesn't stay hot enough very long because the blacksmiths, think about this, they would wake up, it's cold outside, you go into a, you go into a, 
uh, kind of a log cabin looking place, wooden, wood floors, it's just it's dark and grimy all over the place, and, and then you fire up this metal, well this, this anvil has been sitting in the cold, maybe it's snowed outside, maybe it's a day like this, it'll, it'll warm up, but at nighttime it was still cold, so this anvil's it, it's cold. It's it's really cool, and so you put that you put that hot metal onto it, and it's gonna and it's gonna cool down faster than it would uh, in the summertime when the when the anvil would be room temperature. We use the word smith or blacksmith. It it means specialized craftsman, but also you guys know the terminology wordsmith. Somebody who's a writer, uh, a Noel Nigren, who can craft words. Um, and say specifically what is meant to be said, but do it in an eloquent way. So uh, a smith is, is a specialized craftsman. I say this, and I get to this point, and I thank you guys for following me through that, is because I think the process of being forged seems very similar to the process of discipleship. I think that we can call our God a blacksmith God because I think he desires to change us and to and to shape us and to and to make us into something that has a specific use. But I think just like that process that some of us want to be formed and some of us want to be shaped but we don't want to put ourselves in the fire. And so we resist the fire, but want the shaping. Resist the fire, but want the shaping. God, change me. Help me never to do this again. God, help me to get to a point where you can use me. God, if the the deepest cry of my heart is to be used by you, God, shape me, form me. We sing songs about it, but we never want to get into the fire. And God says, finally, all right, well, then I'll cold forge you. And you guys have seen your friends, you guys have seen leaders, you guys have seen this happen where God says, all right, I'm going to form you one way or the other. If you get in the fire, it's going to be a lot easier. If you get near me and start burning in your heart, it's going to be a whole lot easier. But if, you, if you're going to stay outside, then I'll cold forge you. But the, but the possibilities of that, when he does that, is a lot of people crack. They break because they can't, they can't take it because they're not malleable yet. And God says, I want to make you this way. And I want, I want, to, do, I want to do something. So I'm not going to wait around any longer. I'm going to shape you. I'm going to form you. I'm going to mold you. But if you're not going to get in the fire, then I'm going to do it anyways. And so we got a lot of Christians that are walking around and they're in some sort of shape. They're used to some degree, but then they got cracks. And you're like, why, why is it that... that that this person has so much potential, but they have this crack in it. It's like, man, they didn't get in the fire. And you can fix that if you go back into the fire. The process of being forged seems very similar to that of becoming a disciple. And I think when Jesus tells us to be like him, I think, I think in my mind, he, he was a blacksmith and he was, he was helping to form and forge these disciples and, and laying the groundwork for for the word of God that helps to forge us. But then I think he wants us to take it one step further. And, and Proverbs twenty seven seventeen as as one as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I think he wants us to become blacksmiths. I think he wants us to gather people around us that we're helping to form and forge and shape. And sometimes that requires knocking them upside the head, right? Many times God has taken that hammer to my life and it hurts bad. 
but it doesn't hurt that bad if I've been in the fire because I know that there's a purpose in that. I think, I think sometimes we hold our tongue and, and we don't say what, we, what should be said because we think, well, it's not really my place to say this about him or about her. But Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen gives us that opportunity to do it. And we should be shaping and forming each other. We should, we should be crafted and we should, we should say, listen, you're not ever going to, you're not ever going to, if, if down the road five or 10 years from now, or we go to college or we part ways, I, I want you to be sharper than you were when you first met me. I want you to be a better tool in the hands of God than you were when you first met me. But sometimes we just let life happen. We go to movies and, and we go hang out with friends and, and, it's not really, there's no real contact, there's no real impact. And sometimes iron and sharpening iron is loud and it's, and it's messy and it's hot. So dare to do it. You know, I, I was thinking about this and um, I was thinking about it in the terms of accountability. And I hate that word because I've, I've, I would go as far as to say that I've never seen accountability work well. Um, I've, I've decided to rename uh, one of the accountability groups that uh, I know of. I'm not a part of it, but I stumbled across something in the last couple of weeks. And I decided to say, you know what? You guys aren't an accountability group if this stuff happens. You guys are just a friends group. Because you guys are just getting together for, for a meal or for a coffee or something and, and, and talking about life and then talking about how you're, you're going to get better one day. But accountability tries to put consequences to action puts consequences to sin if if you do this then this is what's this is what's going to happen that's like if you speed and then you see a police car up the road or or pull in behind you immediately you go back down to the to the speed limit but when the police officer leaves or takes the next exit you just go right back to speeding and and it's because it's because you you're only going to not do something when there's a consequence involved in it. But then uh, fast forward your life to where you have a car seat or two in your car and a child strapped into that car seat. And all of a sudden, the foot, your foot is a little bit light on the pedal. And your eyes are looking all around and you become a defensive driver. Why? Because there's something inside of that vehicle which dictates purpose and a higher calling. And so... And so it's not, I got to get there quick. It's, I got to get there safe. And so, and so the, the whole idea of consequence doesn't matter to you. You're going to drive the same whether there's a cop behind you or a cop in front of you or no cop at all because, because it's not about consequences. It's about, it's about purpose. It's about a cause. See, Jesus called his disciples at one point. He said, listen, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And accountability uh, lean so much on consequences. And when you're a servant, your main goal is to obey your master. It's obedience. And I think, I think the majority of Christians live life in the, in the realm and in the context of obedience. And I think we should just do away with all that. And that sounds terrible to do away with obedience. But listen, when you're called a friend, it's not about obeying or disobeying a friend. It's about, it's about disappointing your friend. If you do something wrong, you don't want to disappoint your friend. And, and that takes us to the next level. And I think that's what Jesus was telling his disciples. Listen, I, don't, I no longer call you servants because you're just concerned about obeying me. But I want you to find joy with me. I want you to take part in knowing my will and doing it with me. And, 
then what will keep you from, from walking away or what will keep you from doing something bad or committing a sin is that, is that you know me so much that you don't want to disappoint me. I say this quote as often as I can because I believe in it. My mentor is 88 years old, living up in Denver, uh, pastor to church for 51 years, and, and his, his main life quote that he fashioned after all these years is this, the greatness of a man is determined by the cause he lives for and the price he's willing to pay to achieve it. The greatness of a man is determined by the cause he lives for and the price he's willing to pay to achieve it. Because we have to have something living inside of us that we're living for. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck in the cycle of obedience and sin, obedience and sin. And we're going to be, we're going to be these, these pieces of metal that are, that are looking at that fire going, I don't want to dare get in that fire. That fire looks hot. And so you just stay as a stagnant, straight piece of metal that's never, ever used. You just stay in that little case, in that little box of metal that maybe one day, maybe one day the blacksmith will, will, will choose to use you. But in order for him to choose to use you, he has to first shape you and mold you and make you into that tool specific for a task. And so don't be afraid of the fire. Listen to this. We are most pliable when we are burning on the inside. We are most pliable when we are burning on the inside. My, my wife and I uh, are going to have our third child in April, um, at the end of April. And so we, we have Noah, who's four, and Kaylee, who's two. And right now they share a room. And so the, the baby's room, would, what will eventually be the baby's room, has just been a guest bedroom. If, if Emily's uh, parents come and, and stay with us, then then they could, they could stay in that room. But it's one of those rooms that you just kind of never go into. It's got a lot of boxes and storage stuff in it and, and then one uh, kind of small bed. And, and so it just never gets used. Well, we're thinking, okay, we've got to make this room up for the, for the new baby. And so we're thinking we're going to paint it and move that bed out and move the crib back into it. And then we were just talking about how how we want to prepare our hearts and be ready for whatever God has for us. You know, sometimes the next thing is the thing that you're already in, but sometimes, sometimes you've got to prepare yourself for the next thing. And so we just had this kind of a conversation that lasted a couple of days uh, off and on of, of we want to be making the decisions to make ourselves ready for what God has for us. And so out of that, we said, you know what, let's, let's start now. Let's just move, let's just move this bed out. Let's, let's paint this room. And, and then instead of moving the crib in and making it like a baby room, uh, let's, let's do something where we just make it a prayer room. You guys, you guys know about like Pandora.com that you can, you can plug your computer in and, and put speakers and just have, choose like worship music. And then you just have continual worship music going. And so, so I was like, let's just make it. And so we went to Walmart and we got like, uh, sounds silly, but uh, we got just like the, the scented oil uh, stuff that have, that it, anyways, I just wanted to make this room something that was like candles and, and something that when you walk into the room, it smells different. Something about the room feels different, that you change the actual atmosphere of the room. Man, that was, that was the best thing I've ever done in my life. We, we've got about five weeks until we have our baby. And there's something inside of me. Man, if I could, I'd, I'd leave right now and go straight to that room. And just, we, there's nothing in it but a couple of pillows to lean up against the wall and, and some speakers. 
and candles and this and this scented stuff. And you walk in and it just it just changes your heart. I've never been drawn to something to something like like that room just calls to me because you, because I can meet God there. And it was there that I was sitting there and I was reading and praying and worshiping. And I got this, I just got this image of, of this piece of metal burning, glowing orange, hot, orange and hot that, that's easy to be fashioned and shaped. And that's, that's a good picture, but, but we got to do it. You got to make room. You got to do something, something in your life that changes something that it's fine to go to church. But listen, if you're only getting fed from Sunday school or from main service or from the mill at Friday night, then you're missing out on, on something that we've been called to. And that's a personal relationship with the Lord. And that's when he actually takes you and puts you on the anvil and takes that hammer to you and starts to mold you and shape you. But you got to get drawn. You got to, you got to go to where the fire is. You got to put yourself in that and, and you got to press in until he meets with you. Listen, too many Christians want to be changed, but won't get in the fire. So when God does start changing them, they break. You, you want to change, you want to change, you want to change, but you keep doing the same things over and over again, and you never have a place. And maybe that place is your car. Maybe that place is at the World Prayer Center. Maybe that place is, is at a park when it warms up. I don't, care, I don't care where it is. It doesn't have to smell. It doesn't have to have candles. It doesn't have to have worship music going, whatever it is, get there, run to it and get yourself into the fire. We shouldn't send people on missions until they understand it's about Jesus and it's about Jesus inside of them. And then it's about them understanding their world within that context. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we praise you. Thank you for this day. God, we submit ourselves to you. God, you are the blacksmith, God. You are the forger of our lives. And we submit to that process. We love you and praise you.